This is the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Sonica Dange. And I'm Juliana Valencia. Authorities in Marin County are looking for a scammer. Police say the man is offering to sell flat screen TVs at a discounted price. WFT's Julian Hernandez has more. A Marin County man lost $900 after he put his trust in the wrong person. Val Carnecchia was contacted multiple times by a man who claimed to know him from a previous job. The man told Carnecchia he was now working at Sears and could get him flat screen TVs for just $200 through a special employee discount. All he had to do was buy five of them in cash. Carnecchia said he was skeptical at first, but was eventually convinced by the details the man knew about him. He knew quite a bit about me. Uh, he must have done some research about me because he knew who I was and my brother and where I worked previous and now. So it was pretty convincing. The deal was scheduled to take place at the Sears where the man supposedly worked. Once he was there, Carnegie says he went along with it because the setup seemed legitimate. I, I was convinced it was uh, on the up and up when, you know, he didn't say I want to meet you on the side of the road. He said I'll meet you right at Sears. And he actually walked out of Sears, you know, the glass doors at the loading dock, walked right up to me, right out in the open. I handed him the paperwork. He walked right in. After the money exchanged hands, that's when Carnecchia knew something was wrong. The suspect took the cash, immediately walked into the store, and never returned. The victim tried to chase the man down, but by the time he entered the store, there was no sign of the suspect. After the incident, the victim said that the only way people can prevent this from happening to them is to be very skeptical of anyone making this type of offer. Even though it sounds great and you think you might know the person, and even if you do, you still need to be careful. This day and age, is everybody's trying to take advantage of you. Security cameras inside the store captured footage of the suspect. Detectives have released the image in hopes that someone can identify the mystery man. If anyone has information about this case, Marion County authorities ask that you call 352-368-7867. Reporting for Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, this is Julie Hernandez. As Election Day continues to inch closer, religion seems to be dominating a very large portion. Demographics across the country are measuring their own values against our two presidential candidates, one of which has openly supported gay marriage, the other who practices a religion many would consider controversial, Mormonism. As religion continues to play such a large role, some black clergy have told their flocks to simply stay home on Election Day. Surprising and perhaps unfortunate news for the nation's first African-American president. Reverend Milford Greiner is an African-American Christian from Pleasant Plain United Methodist Church. He holds his own values in high regard, but telling his flock to stay away from the polls? That's where Reverend Greiner says he draws the line. I do not support that. I think that it's wrong uh, for pastors to tell their church members not to vote at all. Uh, in the history of our country, especially uh, for blacks in particular, there's been too much bloodshed, too many lives lost, and, and, and too much uh, that has happened, especially for black people, for us to not even go to the uh, polls to vote. So I think that's wrong. I'm against that, and I would never absolutely never tell anyone or any of my congregation members not to vote at all. Greiner has been openly against President Obama's stance on gay marriage, but he says that one factor will not keep him from voting Democrat this coming election. Well, I made that 
my position very clear on that. Uh, I support the uh, uh, president. I voted for him in 2008, but I made it clear that I was opposed to his uh, stance on uh, same-sex marriage. But only on that issue uh, do I oppose him on, but that does not mean that I'm going to withdraw my support for him uh, for a second term. But I did make it clear that I was opposed to his stance on that issue. And Reverend Greiner continued to say Romney's Mormonism is not the reason he'll be voting for Obama for the second time either. I don't have any uh, issue with uh, his religion. Of course, I don't. Uh, uh, believe all the aspects of the Mormon faith, but um, that's his uh, religion, and I respect him, just like I would expect him to respect mine as a Methodist. So therefore, I can't uh, unfairly judge him solely based on his religion. So I have no problem with it. Greiner says the only thing he insists on from his flock is that they're registered to vote? The only thing I'm, I'm doing uh, as a pastor is encouraging my congregation to vote. Uh, how they vote uh, and who they vote for is entirely up to them. I'm not going to make any recommendations. As a matter of fact, I'm not allowed to make, as a Methodist pastor, uh, any recommendations from the pulpit. I can't do that. But I am going to encourage, and I have been encouraging my congregations, I have two churches, to go to the polls and vote for the candidates of their choice. And Reverend Milford Greiner isn't the only African-American Christian who feels that way. Mount, Ol Mount Olive AME Church Pastor Richard Brown says his clergy is holding workshops. That's to inform their flock about the most up-to-date voter information. Just kind of keeping them informed as, as as we get the information. Is keeping them informed that okay, these are the dates to remember. You know, keep in keep in mind, and just ensure that they are registered. Um, we have about four or five people within the congregation that are also doing the same thing. Just trying to get people to to register and vote. Uh, we set up a couple of workshops. Uh, one was done on Monday uh, to do the same thing. Just inform people about about the um, voting procedures. But those religiously inclined aren't the only demographic both candidates need to focus on. For me, the biggest issue for women in this election mm -hmm. is abortion. Women in the workplace, health care, equal pay, work week, education, health care. Women voters. According to the supervisor of elections office, there are 16,000 registered voters in Alachua County. 70,000 are males. 90,000 are females. That means 56% of voters are women. And WUFT went out on the scene to learn many of them are focusing on very specific issues. Paige Kaufman is a junior at the University of Florida. She says despite her strong stance on certain issues, they alone will not define who she votes for. Well, uh, definitely. Um, watching the Democratic National Convention when you saw that law student who went in front of Congress and made the argument that women should be able to get birth control for free and be covered uh, with female health issues, um, I definitely feel that it is a major issue in this upcoming election, meaning female contraception and coverage for women. 
Um, obviously, you know, I guess the the answer would be Obama would be that candidate um, over Romney, but that can't be a deciding factor whether people vote for Obama. While it is an important issue to me, and I do believe in women's rights, and I am pro-choice, there are a lot of factors behind it that just simply looking at it and giving the answer that I'm giving, saying, okay, well, this is how Obama feels and he's for it and Romney feels against it. There are so many other issues that this would not be the one reason why I would vote for Obama, but that is an important issue to women, and I do understand why women would vote for Obama due to his stance on health care for women. Anna Pardo says health care is one of the most important issues for her. I just think that it's uh, a right to have health care for everyone in our community, including women. And so I think it's important to, for women to be well-versed in the health care area. And Erica Ritzman says her greatest concern is how women are treated in a professional environment. Women in the workplace, I think, is also a really big issue. Um, I know Obama signed a legislation for equal pay. Lisa Lab is from the National Organization of Women, and she says in light of all the serious issues being voiced, both presidential candidates have quite a bit of work to do to sway the female vote one way or another. I think women are very angry about the way things have been going with the war on women. Um, I think that uh, reproductive rights are a key issue, uh, equal pay is a key issue, and just a basic economic uh, equality and justice is what's going to get us out to vote. Joanne Bullivan is also from now. She says no matter which candidate females are leaning toward, only one thing truly matters. I think that if either candidate would pay attention to the things that are important to women, which are in fact the things that are important to all of us as citizens, then they would do a good job. The general election is November 6th, last day to register, October 9th. Florida Governor Rick Scott says jobs have increased and employment has dropped since he took office. But others say that really depends on who all is counted. Reagan McCarthy reports the governor didn't take kindly to questions on the issue following Tuesday's cabinet meeting. Florida Governor Rick Scott says the state's unemployment rate dropped from 11.1 percent when he took office to 8.8 percent this July. But the state's chief economist, Amy Baker, says a lot of the dip in the unemployment rate really comes from people giving up on looking for work. Reporters asked the governor about that during a press conference after Tuesday's cabinet meeting. You've seen the state numbers that showing most of the unemployment rate drop is due to people no longer looking for work. So what are they doing? Mike, look at the chart. Look at the Department of Labor numbers. It's 130,000 jobs. That's 130,000 families that now have work that didn't have it before. But most of the unemployment... 130,000 jobs, Mike. Go ahead. Did you have a question? Later, during the same press conference, the reporter tried to ask about the unemployment numbers again. Are you saying those, those numbers from the state of commerce are wrong, Governor? I'm saying we've generated 130,000 jobs, Mike. But that's John, Mike, I've answered all your questions on that. No, my question is about the Mike, unemployment rate. I said I've answered all your questions. Scott says people are getting jobs in the state. He claims about 130,000 jobs have been created since he took office. Meanwhile, state reports show if the number of people dropping out of the workforce were taken into account, the unemployment rate would be 9.8 percent instead of 8.8. The state's August unemployment rates are set to come out Friday. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Regan McCarthy. The historic Duck Pond neighborhood in Gainesville is losing one of its most important residents, their namesake Ducks. We're joined now with WUFT's Mike Biana. He was out on the scene this morning. He spoke to the Neighborhood Association and the neighbors. Mike, why are these ducks being kicked out? Well, Sonica, it's pretty simple. These 
ducks, there's 13 of them in the pond. They're actually Muscovy ducks, and they are they have a known track record for being very hostile, um, although that's not necessarily the case from what I've heard from the residents so far. I just heard of this news, and honestly, like I, I don't understand why they would do something like that. You know, the duck pond is called the duck pond for a reason, and without the ducks, it's just it's just going to be a pond, you know. And um, you know, it's a little upsetting to hear that they're going to do something like that. Okay, well, that was one of the residents I talked to earlier today. That was Cynthia Lopez, and she was out for a walk. She was looking at the ducks, taking pictures of them. And from what I can see, they didn't seem very hostile at all. And uh, I think she was just generally upset that these ducks will be taken out of the pond. Did she know that the ducks were going to be taken out before you went up to her and asked her about it? Well, she was actually very surprised. She had no idea until I told her that the DNA yesterday actually voted to remove these ducks. So that's it was a 15 to 3 vote. And I think the general fear was this has happened before. Uh, they had 80 ducks removed uh, in 2002. So they, this is more of a preventative measure. I'm sure they just wanted to nip it in the bud. Because years ago, we had a major renovation of the duck pond. And before the renovation, there were about 80 Muscovy ducks. And the people that live around the pond here complained about them being very uh, fertile, uh, aggressive, messy. And uh, imagine 80 ducks there, that, that's quite a lot of ducks. So people did not want to have a repeat of that situation. So once we saw that, uh, again, we had Muscovy ducks here and that they started breeding, uh, the issue came up about their removal. And in order to have a democratic process about whether to remove them or not, we had a meeting last night. Again, so that was Edith Kahn. She's actually a member of the Duck Pond Neighborhood Association Board. And you heard her right there. She was very concerned about this happening again. They didn't want it to be the same issue as they had in 2002. Now, mind you, they started with just three of this, these, just three of these Muscovy ducks. So it was actually a struggle for them. They hatched uh, two. They hatched a total of 14 ducks in May, and uh, they have since gone to be quite large. So you know that's just one thing they don't want it to happen again. And uh, I think they decided to go ahead and get rid of these ducks before it gets any worse. All right. Thank you so much. That was WUFT's Mike Viana. You can catch his full story on First at Five. Cancer has overtaken heart disease as the number one killer of Hispanics in New York. And the American Cancer Society says it will probably replace heart disease as the nation's top cause of death in the next 10 years. University of Florida Shands Cancer Center Assistant Professor Dr. Jose Trevino says a main reason cancer is becoming a leading cause of death in Hispanics is because of their lack in health care. When you look at the big picture, it's probably a very similar theme. Different populations probably don't get health care um, for different reasons, but ultimately the end result is the same. So if you want to look at the broad picture, regardless of the setting, I think the, the, I believe that the biggest uh, problem with um, uh, the uh, cancer uh, deaths or morbidity and mortality um, is due to uh, not getting health care. Trevino says Florida's type of population could also add to the increase in cancer among Hispanics. I think one of the biggest problems that we have in Florida, at least for the Hispanic population, is that we have a large migrant population. Um, 
and, and very much like most of the border cities, but Florida in general. And when you look at the migrant population, um, uh, they, they come, they do, they work the fields, they don't have any health insurance, um, and uh, for the most part, when they get sick, um, they don't really seek out uh, health care because of their fear of possible uh, deportation if they're found out to be illegals, um, or they just don't have any money and they feel somehow responsible for having to pay uh, back society for their health care. But overall, death rates for both cancer and heart disease have been dropping for every demographic, including Hispanics. A report on cancer facts and figures for Hispanics of 2014 says it estimates 1,100 800 incidents among Hispanics and 33,000 cancer deaths will occur among Hispanics. Trevino says Shans is trying to reach out to people earlier so that they have a better chance of survival. We are now becoming more aware of uh, the patients with cancer and the ones that are, are being caught a little too late. And so therefore, when they're caught too late with cancer, um, their chances of survival are, are much lower. And that's why I think that the mortality associated with cancer has, been, uh, has, has, has increased in Hispanics, per se. Another reason for the rising numbers is cancer's tendency to kill people earlier in life. And AP says Hispanics are younger on average than any other demographic. Trevino hopes with promoting screening methods to catch cancers early on and advocating healthy lifestyles, these numbers will reduce. However, the report does say that Hispanics have lower incidences of common cancers such as breast and colon rectum cancer and a higher incidence and mortality rate for cancers such as stomach and liver cancer. The study is being published in the September-October Cancer Society publication, a cancer journal for clinicians. School districts and administrators have long complained about reporting requirements and mandates from the state that they don't get funding to carry out. And now Governor Rick Scott has announced he'll convey a panel of five superintendents to find out ways to reduce their paperwork. Scott says he wants teachers to spend more time teaching instead of trying to figure out how to comply with state rules and regulations. So the, what you hear is there's, there's, um, there's a lot of paperwork, there's uh, mandates, unfunded mandates, and so I want to you know, go through them, go through. But many public school supporters remain skeptical of the governor's recent attempts to reach out. In a statement, Miami Democratic Representative Dwight Bullard said, the governor's recent overtures to teachers and administrators through an education listening tour is, quote, politically convenient. About 3,000 employees could soon be out of a job after the Florida Department of Corrections recently received the funds to privatize its inmates' health care services. A legislative budget panel gave millions of dollars to the department to contract with two private com companies. But now, as Sasha Corner reports, a state employee union filed a lawsuit Friday to block the move. In early July, Leon Circuit Judge Kevin Carroll had previously dismissed the case because the budget provision that let the state privatize inmate health care services had already expired. But about a month later, the two employee unions who had filed the initial suit asked Carroll to reconsider the case. The two groups are the Florida Nurses Association and AFSCME, or the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. The unions contend the Florida Department of Corrections was still pursuing private vendor contracts for prison inmate health care services under the expired budget provision. 
but the state claims it has the authority to privatize prison health care services, even without a provision written into the budget. Now Judge Carroll has denied the motion to rehear the challenge, ruling in favor of the state, but he says both unions can still come back with a new request. And NAFSME spokesman Doug Martin says his union is looking at all their options. Our attorneys are evaluating the judge's decision and uh, looking at our next uh, steps in this legal action and have not decided on uh, the best course of action yet, but we will uh, let the public know once once our attorneys have determined a course of action. Martin says close to 3,000 employees' jobs are in jeopardy if the department is allowed to privatize the state's inmate prison health care services. He adds the effort in general is just a bad deal for everyone involved. It's not just going to affect employees, but, uh, but also is a bad deal for taxpayers. And in the past, when they have attempted to privatize parts of the prison health system, it's led to inmate death, so um, very bad outcomes. So far, the department has awarded contracts to private bidder Corizon Incorporated for inmate health services in northwest and central Florida. And another private vendor, Wexford Health Sources, will serve institutions in south Florida. However, a department spokeswoman says that process has been paused again because of a bid protest from a private vendor. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Sasha Cordner. Space Shuttle Endeavor flew out of the Kennedy Space Center this morning on top of a modified 747 starting the first leg of its journey to Los Angeles. WMFE's Mark Simpson reports astronauts and shuttle workers were on hand for the moment. Endeavor punched through clouds and made a low-level pass over the Space Coast and Kennedy Space Center. The duo dipped their wings in salute. Astronaut Greg Chamatoff says he's proud of Endeavor's legacy. You know, it'll be a long time before we see a vehicle, as uh, a spaceship, as large and as uh, spectacular and as capable as the shuttle. So uh, it's, it's really something we should be proud of. Endeavor will stop over in Houston before heading to Los Angeles International Airport. It started flying in 1992, completing 25 missions, 12 of them to the International Space Station. WUFT's Danny Gibble talked to CBS radio correspondent Peter King, who was at the event and told us about what it was like to see the last flight. How many people attended the takeoff of the flight of the Endeavor today? Well, it was fewer people than uh, were there for Discovery, and I don't know what the head count is, but there were certainly fewer media, there were certainly fewer astronauts. It seemed that uh, there were only a couple there today, but for Discovery, the first shuttle to leave and to go to uh, the Washington, D.C. area, it seemed like there were a couple of dozen astronauts and uh, really several hundred uh, people out at the uh, runway. Now, that said, there were still a lot of people who were along the beaches at Cocoa Beach, Cape Canaveral, uh, and at other viewing spots at the Kennedy Space Center where they uh, got flyovers before uh, it headed uh, west uh, over Orlando at Disney World and then on to the Gulf and then Houston. Do you believe like there wasn't as many people because of the, the delays that had happened throughout the week? Well, well, you know something, uh, that's a really good question, and uh, that always seemed to happen with shuttle launches when we'd get uh, two or three day uh, weather delays. So I think that's part of it. But also, you know, the fact that uh, it wasn't the first shuttle to leave Kennedy Space Center may also have something to do with that. I mean, you may remember that uh, uh, the, the uh, first uh, return to flight, for example, after uh, the Columbia accident back a few years ago. Uh, there was a huge crowd to cover it, and then 
the uh, media crowd and and the uh, spectator crowd uh, was down markedly after that. Uh, it's just uh, just human nature, I guess. Uh, the other interesting thing is that Endeavor is the last shuttle to fly out of Florida. Atlantis is going to be towed on uh, State Road 3 and uh, the uh, Kennedy Space Center Causeway uh, to the visitor's complex in November. It won't be flown there because it's only a few miles away. So what was the, like, the atmosphere of the people there? Were they relieved that it finally was able to fly away? Well, I think I can tell you that... Uh, you know, once once they got the orbiter stacked on top of the 747, they wanted to get it on out of there and on the way to uh, California because that's what their mission was. But there's a great deal of sadness too. I mean, it's it's you know another uh, end of an era, if you will. And for for all the people who've processed and worked on uh, shuttle Endeavor over the years, you know, uh, the vehicle manager, woman who is in charge of uh, preparing Endeavor for the California Science Center, told me last week. You know, it's like seeing your kids go off to school, and uh, you know they're not coming back, and uh, it's a very tough day. There are going to be a, a number of layoffs in the next couple of weeks because the people who have finished uh, working on Endeavor, their jobs are done. There's nothing left for them to do. There's nothing for them to launch. Uh, Atlantis has its own crew that's working on it. So, you know, it's a, a very, very uh, sad feeling, I think. A bit, yes, a very b- bittersweet what did it look like for, to see the shuttle on top of the jumbo jet? People see it on TV, and it just it looks amazing, but just in person. What? I've seen it up close and personal, and, uh, you know, it looks the same as it does on TV, only bigger. <laughs> and it, <laughs> it's, it's like the difference between watching a football game on TV and being there. There's nothing quite like the sight of a space shuttle sitting on top of this 747 right before your eyes. And, you know, it's like watching a shuttle launch or anything else spectacular. Hard to believe sometimes that it's right in front of you. And I've seen that stack several times, and the thrill never went away. And, you know, for me personally, it's sad that it's the last time we'll see that. Was was there anything other about the experience that you enjoyed? Well, you know what, I th- I think it's always exciting as a reporter to be someplace where a milestone is happening a first or a last but you used the word bittersweet a little bit earlier and you know certainly felt this way with discovery um after covering so many missions for 15 16 years and all of a sudden to see uh shuttles flying away from the kennedy space center not on rockets but on top of a 747 and you know they're not coming back I mean, that's kind of a, an emotional thing. Uh, my wife and I took a vacation this summer and stopped at the uh, Smithsonian Annex near Dulles Airport where Discovery is on display. And seeing her there was a very, very emotional experience, much more than I ever expected. I've seen shuttles, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of times. I've been up close and personal with them. And uh, just seeing the orbiter that we knew flew so many times in a museum instead of getting prepared for another space flight was just a very, very strange experience. And I know that for the people who worked on these ships, when they go see them in D.C. for the first time or maybe at the California Science Center where, where uh, Endeavor will be or even over to, to visit uh, Atlantis at the Kennedy Space Center Visitors Complex, you know, it's going to be very, very emotional for, for them as well because we're all used to seeing these shuttles get ready ready to fly and 
you know, it's been more than a year since they've uh, flown missions, and it's still sometimes hard for many to accept that uh, they're not flying anymore. That was WUFT's Danny Gibble talking to CBS radio correspondent Peter King. This is the last ferry flight for NASA. The shuttle will arrive at Los Angeles International Airport this Friday. In mid-October, it will be transported down the city streets to the California Science Center. It's been more than two years since the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, but environmentalists are still working hard to ensure fisheries in this sensitive ecosystem are healthy. As WMNF's Janelle Irwin reports, scientists at a symposium in St. Pete Beach are mulling over ways to manage both shortages and abundances of sea life. One of the sponsors is famed t-shirt artist and environmentalist Guy Harvey. He runs a foundation that focuses on improving the overall health of oceans. One of the group's concerns, he says, is the dwindling worldwide shark population. To feed the Asian demand for shark fin soup, many species of sharks have been severely overfished, with some shark populations reduced to less than 10%. Some fishermen argue there's been an influx in sharks over the past several years. Bob Huter is associate vice president at Moat Marine Laboratory in Sarasota. He says there are some species whose populations are on the rise, but that doesn't mean sharks are in the clear. The black tip shark is a, is a relatively fast-growing shark. Instead of taking 15 or 20 years to mature, um, they only mature in about six or seven years. And uh, we did a stock assessment, a CDAR assessment of the black tip a few months ago. And the stock is in good shape. But that's something Huter says could be used to help other species. I've actually been a proponent of trying to redirect our shark fisheries to a species like the black tip and away from some of the species that are in trouble, like the sandbar, uh, and try to get the market um, to, to adjust to that as well. Saving endangered species isn't the only component of fishery restoration. According to Chuck Wilson, chief scientific officer for the Gulf of Mexico Research Institute, some species, like redfish, are actually in abundance. But there's a catch. Most of the species are in their teens, even though they can live to be 50 or 60 years old. Wilson compared the problem to what would happen in the human population. You can see the imbalance you'd have both in the workforce, kind of a good example, imbalance in the workforce, imbalance in experience. Well, in the fish population, that's reproductive capacity. Because the bigger you are and the older you are, uh, the more eggs you tend to put out over your lifetime. Wilson said because there's an abundance of young redfish but a shortage of mature ones, regulations get a little tricky. Most size regulations say a fish must be a certain size to keep. But in this case, the management strategy would be the other way around. If a fish makes it to this size, you let it live on. If you catch it, you got to let it go or you don't fish areas where they're caught. Jim Bonesack is a research fishery scientist with the National Marine Fisheries Service in Miami. As scientists, we want to make sure the best data get used in the management process. Our role is to develop the understanding, the science that allows us to, uh, for the to have the resource re restored and uh, be healthy. Bonesack said part of that protection includes more than just studying sea life. As he put it, you can take the fish out of its habitat but you can't take the habitat out of the fish. So if the, all the seagrass died, just replanting it's not going to solve the problem. Why did it die? In some case, we have to do a better job with our water quality, our runoff, um, our sewage treatment. Seagrass functions as a nursery for many of the species living in the Gulf. 
run a net through it, and you're likely to find any number of egg sacs and infant sea life. Stephen Morosky, a professor at USF's College of Marine Science, says it's important to protect both wildlife and habitats. This is the epicenter of recreational fishing in the country, right? So there's a huge economic dependence on fisheries. The symposium will continue tomorrow. It'll wind up with a Guy Harvey Film Festival featuring two of his documentaries and trailers for upcoming films starting at 7 in the evening. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Janelle Irwin in St. Pete Beach. The third round of so-called quantitative easing, or QE3, is intended to stimulate the economy and bring down the unemployment rate. Some critics are calling the move politically motivated and short-sighted. But economic analyst Hank Fishkind tells WMFE's Tom Parkinson that the Fed's actions will have a positive impact on Central Florida's economy. It'll have a noticeably positive impact. It flows through housing markets. Uh, It will drive down mortgage rates here, which, of course, will stimulate housing sales in central Florida, but it also stimulates sales throughout the country. And that causes greater population growth, which adds to the demand for housing all across Florida. Now, when you say it's going to drive down the mortgage rates, drive them down to what? Probably fixed-rate 30-year mortgages are going to be between 3 and and 3.25%, so uh, the lowest rates ever. Compared to what? What is it now? Uh, they're running about three and a half to four percent right now. So from three and a half to four down to three and a quarter, it doesn't seem like that much of a difference. Is that going to really make that much difference? It'll make enough difference. Uh, yes, rates are already at historically low rates, and many people who could already afford a home are doing so. But this is a significant added incentive. And as I said, not only does it affect the local market, but it will affect markets that we draw upon for our demand. So the combination of those two things magnifies the effects here in central Florida. Now, Hank, for a lot of us who are not economists, uh, this whole idea of QE3, quantitative easing, mortgage-backed securities, what does this really mean? Can you just give us a a real basic primer on what this is? Sure. Uh, Mortgage institutions lend money to people. They get the mortgages. Then they package up those mortgages in what's called mortgage-backed securities, and they sell them either to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, or in this case, they're going to sell them to the Fed. When the bank sells the mortgage, it then frees that money up to make another mortgage. The purchasing of these mortgage-backed securities increases their price and therefore drives down their interest rates. So it will cause interest rates to be lower, and it will add liquidity to the marketplace, and it's focused on housing, which has been the major part of the problem holding back the economic recovery. Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke says the move will bring down the unemployment rate. How exactly would it do that, and how will it impact us in Florida? Well, by stimulating housing demand, it'll create direct employment, and that will also then have multiplier effects throughout the economy. Lowering all the interest rates has the same consequence. In addition, we've had a major rally in the stock market as investors moved away from lower-yielding financial assets into higher-yielding, hopefully, stocks. That's created a lot of wealth, and when wealth goes up, people tend to consume more. So the combination of those effects will have a stimulative effect, and most analysts, including me, estimate about one and a half percentage points of GDP, maybe as much as that, has been supported by the Fed policy. So the most significant effect for us from this here in Florida looks like it'll be in the housing market, which it's hoped will create jobs and stimulate the economy. And the most recent data shows at least marginal improvement already taking place in the housing market. Yes, uh, certainly the data are far better this year. Sales of existing single-family homes are up 3.4% compared to last year in Florida, 4.1% here in Orlando, 
and about 1% in Daytona. Uh, the months of supply on the market has gone down to just 3.8 months here in Orlando, which is a very tight inventory. So housing markets have stabilized. The problem is they haven't really recovered, although building activity has gone up significantly in the last few months in Orlando. The big issue is the overhang of foreclosures. Foreclosures are up 20% compared to last year in the first seven months of this year in, in Orange County. They're up 100% or more in Osceola and Seminole. So, again, we have this wave of foreclosures that has the ability to have a significant dampening effect on housing markets. Some critics of the Fed's actions are calling it a uh, political stunt. They say that Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke basically is printing money to artificially prop up the economy ahead of the election in November. Uh, You apparently don't agree with that assessment, Hank. Uh, That was WMFE's Tom Parkinson that the Fed's actions will have a positive impact. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Sonica Dange. And I'm Juliana Valencia.